Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. I'm Connor DeLynn. This is episode 49, and this is really going to be a two-part. This is going to start in episode 49, and then the next episode you'll be is a bit of a celebration. I have been hinting at this for episode 50, and so let me tell you what we're going to do for episode 49 and 50 right here. I am about to share with you an interview that maybe is the most fascinating interview I've had yet on this show. Life is interesting. You never know who is going to be put in your path that is going to have an influence on you and the decisions you make and the uh, you know change of perspective that comes from meeting people from all over the world. And I am happy to introduce James Chadwick today, not only as a mentor to me, but as a new friend. Uh, I've known him for about six months now. And every time I've been able to talk to him, I have been so impressed with his way that he looks at the world with his wisdom. And a lot of that comes from a pretty adventurous life. And uh, today, what we're going to do, uh, you're going to find pretty quickly that his life has so much to it and so many different aspects and layers that it's probably impossible to do it all in one interview. Um, He actually recently just published a book, but we're not going to talk about the book that he published today. We're going to kind of pull the clock back and talk about his life and the things and experiences that he did to get him to this point where he sat down and wrote his book that I'll talk about here in a second. Let me give you just a little teaser of James Chadwick's life. He was born in England at 16 years old. He headed to Israel and turned a week-long vacation with his family into a year. He did everything with, you know, from 200, starting with $200 into his pocket of, you know, selling snorkels by the beach, running a hostel in Turkey, selling carpets and rugs at Middle Eastern markets, and had quite the experience early on, all before he went to Oxford University. After his time at Oxford University, he then spent the next 25 years working all over the world. Uh, 17 of those years he spent in Asia, lived a lot of them in Singapore. And his life experience that came from living in these different places and experiencing these different cultures, really, it really has given him a unique view of life. And a lot of this culminated with an 11-day meditation. He did an 11-day silent retreat in Indonesia. So yeah, I'm talking Julia Roberts, eat, pray, love, don't say a word, don't talk for 11 days straight with 100 strangers in one room. He did that. If you thought before, I wonder what that type of experience is like, listen to this interview because I ask him all sorts of questions. I am fascinated with this. I don't think I could go more than 15 minutes without talking. So thinking of 11 days doing this and really getting to that state of uh, meditation and Zen is very, very fascinating for me. And I think you'll find it that way as well. So we're going to discuss all of that in this interview today. And then when I have him back for another interview later on, we're going to talk about after his experience with meditation, he sat down and wrote a book that he calls Path. Uh, It is incredible. Go read the book. Go to jechadwick.com. I would love for you to read this book in advance of us talking about the principles and theories that we'll talk about possibly later on in this show. 
follow his Facebook group for uh, daily little moments of inspiration. It's something that I've enjoyed and my family has definitely enjoyed. Um, I really think you'll uh, like and be interested in getting to know James. Uh, but as far as episode 50, here's what we're going to do. Episode 49, I'm going to get to know James and we're going to talk through his story. And then in episode 50, we are going to switch roles and James is going to interview me. We're going to talk about what I've learned in the podcast so far and uh, a little bit of a celebration for putting out 50 episodes in less than a year. It's definitely a milestone for me. James is going to put his reporter hat on and we're going to have an awesome conversation about what we've learned so far and what I expect the next 50 episodes to look like of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Do not miss this episode with James. You're going to really enjoy this conversation. James, we've talked about doing this for a long time now, and I'm so glad we're finally sitting down and making it happen. How are you, my friend? I'm all fine. Thank you very much, Connor. Really excited to uh, talk to you again today. You know, everyone that's listen listens to this podcast, they know I love to talk, right, James? I mean, if they've listened to every episode, you've probably heard about 40 hours of me uninterrupted speaking. And I think the thing that connected me to you, the, the very first moment I heard anything about you is that you went on an 11-day silent retreat meditating. And I'm like, wait, you went 11 days without talking? <laughs> is, that, is that true? That is absolutely true. Yes. And it was, um, it was the most uh, transform transformational and, and you know, delicious experience of my life. And like, have you lived this life of you, you're like some yogi that meditates all the time? Absolutely not. And in fact, uh, going to do that meditation uh, retreat, which was in central Java in Indonesia, um, was the first time I'd ever really meditated in my life. So I, I went straight in at the deep end uh, <laughs> and I would recommend it to many, many people. Uh, and I, I can share more about it as well. You did not dip your toe in the water. You just went <laughs> all in. And I think what's cool, James, is the more, you know, I've had so many conversations with you now. And like I said earlier, like you have been such a mentor to me and helping me think a little differently and looking at different perspectives, even just about like America in general. My conversations talking to you, I feel like have opened up some different ways of thinking. And one thing that I think is consistent with you is whatever you do, you're all in. You commit to it, you're passionate, and I really admire that about you and uh, am excited in this conversation. I mean, prepping for this interview, it's like, man, how do we fit all of this into just one episode? But we're going to do our best here and we're going to get to the details of that meditation here in a bit. But let's just kind of rewind the clock and I want to just dive into your life a little bit and the things that you've done, lessons that you've learned along the way and how it got you to the point that you are now. James, tell me about your childhood. You grew up in the UK. Anything specific about your childhood that kind of stands out to you and feel that would help us get to know you a little better? Well, I think I had a great childhood. Uh, it was it was a really good mix of both stability and a lot of freedom and independence. Uh, as you said, I grew up in in England. I grew up in you know the middle of England in a village, um, uh, and I was the youngest child of an older brother and sister. Uh, I read a lot. You know, we did a lot of sport, a lot of hiking. 
Um, and as I said, it was really this mix of a lot of stability, uh, which you know very much came from my dad. He's a very stable kind of guy, uh, and um, uh, and the adventure and that kind of in freedom and in independence came a lot from my mum. She was uh, she was someone who just loved traveling on her own. Like even uh, even as a mum, she would just you know grab a backpack and she would go off and say, "All right, I'm going off for a week now," and she would travel around Europe and the Middle East and places. So um, I mean, I remember. When I was 12, let's say, I would, I was, I really got into horse racing for some reason. And I would travel around England on my own on trains and go and watch horse racing. Really? Um, you know, and with friends, we would just jump on our bikes with a tent and we would go off and we would go youth hostling. So from the age of 12, 13 onwards or so, I was pretty free range. Um, and, uh, you know, I've tried to, as a parent myself, I have four boys. And I've tried to do that as well. Like, I think the, the way that we as parents can go wrong um, is that we optimize often for achievement. We focus too much on achievement and not enough on, on independence. Sure. And as you know, like, as you get older, it doesn't really matter exactly what grade you got or whether you played the violin or whatever, at what level. It's really um, how independent you are to kind of go off into the world and, and explore it and be an adventurer. So... Yeah, that's what we we try to optimize for as parents now. Man, that's pretty cool. I'm just picturing a young James on, you know, trains <laughs> throughout England watching horse races. And that really, I mean, kind of paints a picture for what a lot of your life has been like now as we look back. And I mean, you turned 18 and when it was time to leave the house, you didn't mess around. Like I've read parts of your bio and I'm like, I'm very curious to hear about these, uh, this young adulthood phase of your life where, I mean, you were, give me a few highlights here. Yeah. I think for, um, for me, uh, when I actually got to about 16 or 17, I, I actually got quite sick. Um, I, I did some tryouts for a high school team, uh, for a soccer team. And I actually got the flu. I went to bed. And I didn't really get out of bed for about another year. I was absolutely wow. wiped out, exhausted. I think, you know, they would call it now chronic fatigue syndrome. But I was, um, uh, I was in a really bad, dark place. You know, I was pretty suicidal, um, uh, I, I can remember. Um, and we tried lots of, you know, various medical approaches and nothing had quite worked. And then one day, um, my mom and my sister, they took me to Israel um, and they had a theory that the, the warm, dry weather would, would help in Israel. And we went for, I don't know, like a week or 10 days. Uh, and we got to the airport um, uh, to go home at the end. And I was starting to feel a little bit better, uh, but I wasn't you know, sure that I was totally better. And I said, you know what, I want to stay here um, for another week on my own. Um, and they were kind of like, well, you know, I'm not sure about this. And then in the end, they gave me 200 bucks um, and said, okay, well, you know, they changed the ticket and come back in, come back in a week. Uh, and they didn't really see me again for about another year. Um, <laughs> and, wow. Uh, you know, I think it kind of, it may have saved my life, that, that decision, you know. And, and so I, I stayed in Israel for a bit. I, you know, I had, I had to earn money, right? Because I only had a couple of hundred bucks. And uh, in those days, Right. We didn't have a credit card, didn't have any phone. We had sure. no mobile phones in those days. There was no Internet. And so um, 
So this was like 1989 or 1990, I think. Um, so I you know, started renting snorkels and renting books out on the beach and earned some money. And I took a boat to Greece and tried to work in Greece. And I was a terrible restaurant worker in Greece, all across <laughs> Greece, like destroying people's restaurants. Um, I went to Turkey. Uh, I ended up for a short time um, running, helping to run a, well, actually running a hostel in a cave with a set of caves in a place called Cappadocia. Um, I sold carpets and things on the streets of Istanbul. And, uh, and then uh, if you remember 1990, if you know your history and you know your history, um, <laughs> it was the, you know, the, 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 the fall of the, um, the Berlin Wall yeah. in, in 89. And so all these countries in Eastern Europe had, had opened up. So, you know, all these places like, you know, Czechoslovakia and Bulgaria and, um, you know, East Germany and Berlin. Uh, and so it was really this incredible um, time of freedom. Um, I'd grown up with the Cold War and, and suddenly to, to, to be able to go to these places um, uh, and travel uh, in these places was this incredible experience. So I hitchhiked there. I'd been hitchhiking most of the time. I hitchhiked to uh, Eastern Europe and I spent a while there as well. Um, and so it was, it was an amazing few, you know, year or so, reading books, meeting new people, traveling. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, I am, I'm such a planner. Like I just have that as so much, that's just ingrained in me, like needing to have a plan and knowing what I'm doing. And I mean, just like the anxiety, I think that comes out a little bit from thinking, being in a foreign country with 200 bucks and just having no plan, no idea for what you were going to do. How, how do you feel like that experience of just learning this lesson that, Hey, with $200 and, you know, some motivation and just wanting to make sure you were in a good place, you know, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, how did, how did those lessons you learned during that time carry on throughout the rest of your life? I think, I think that's the point. I think after that, you realized, hey, you don't actually need much, right? How, how bad can it get? Right? If you lose your job or you, yeah. you have no money, you can always get by. You, can, you, don't, you don't need a, a big plan. Uh, you just need some books and an open road. Um, <laughs> and so knowing that, I think that you always have this backup plan was pretty useful, I think, for the rest of my life. It was that sense of freedom and that sense of lightness. And that um, confidence, I guess, just to jump. If you jump, the net will appear. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think that's what it taught me. My poor parents must have been terrified, right? I think they got a couple of postcards during the whole year. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they survived. And I think they're the ones that probably had the, uh, the toughest time of it all. I, I can imagine like, Hey, we, we went on a one week trip with our son and all of a sudden <laughs> we haven't heard from him in a year. Yeah. You know, I, I see some parallels with that of you talk about, you know, the Berlin wall coming down and all of a sudden, because people couldn't travel to these places and couldn't express that freedom, all of a sudden, then that's what everyone wanted to do because they'd felt life without that. And I definitely think there's some parallels to what we've gone through with the pandemic over the last year, year and a half, where all of a sudden we couldn't travel. You, you couldn't explore. You had to stay in. You had to stay home. And I really expect, I am ex experiencing this personally of coming out of the pandemic, like, 
I need to go see places. I feel pent up. Like I want to go. And do you think as a society, like we're about to experience that as a whole right now? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think freedom is the most important, you know, motivation for humans. Yeah. I think it inspires them at work. I think it, you know, it drives them uh, to all kinds of great things. So um, people just want to be free. That's, that's what America is based on. And um, I think you're right. I think it's the minute that those travel bans are, um, are lifted uh, and we can travel again. I think people will be a little bit cautious. Some of the older generations might be a little bit cautious, but I think the younger generations are just going to, a lot of them are going to do what I did. They're just going to say, I'm out of here. Right? I'm, I'm going to Asia. I've got my backpack. I'm, you know, <laughs> there's so much pent up desire to uh, get out and about. So um, I think it's going to be exciting. For sure. Well, I've got a couple trips planned myself, but we won't talk about that right now, but I am feeling that emotion and going for it, trying to channel a little of my inner James, I guess you could put it that way. Um, but you decide, you end up kind of settling down a bit, if we were to call it that. You go to Oxford. Tell me what allowed you to make that decision to, okay, I'm going to give up my life of selling carpets out in these street markets <laughs> and actually get a little more serious and go to university. Yeah, well, um, I did. Uh, I ended up uh, straight after that going to Oxford University, um, and that was magical. I mean, that's there's no other word for it. It's it's a three year a bachelor's degree is typically three years. It's a huge privilege. It's a deeply historical, beautiful, gothic um, you know uh, city. You know the, the buildings that you live in and you study are 800 years old. Everything's like a Harry Potter movie. Um, before Harry Potter, of course. Sure. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I turned up to study literature, right? English literature, that had always been my interest. And I got there and, you know, in week one, I it was taken aside by this um, postgraduate uh, guy who took me down to the pub and said, uh, he said, you know, you're not here to study literature, you're here to study literary theory. And I didn't even know what literary theory was. Um, <laughs> and he said, well, you know, you know, you're not here just to read books and write about them, right? You know, there's there's different ways to study and think about books. And that's, you know, there's Marxist literary theory, there's feminist literary theory, there's postmodernism and genre theory, narrative theory. And I just did, I had no idea. And, and he kind of said, look, you know, read this. It's an introduction to literary theory. And I read this book in, you know, that afternoon. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this isn't what I signed up for. But um <laughs> But I, I just loved it, right? And, and it was, it was again, it was very liberating because you, um, whatever you were studying that that term, it was okay. Well, we're going to study Shakespeare. We don't, you know. So now we're going to be doing a, a Marxist interpretation of Shakespeare, or a feminist, or a, you know, mm. a postmodernist. So it was, it was quite a, like an intellectual um, uh, feat, I think, just to kind of look at all these things in new ways and. Um, I loved it. And, and the Oxford tutorial system um, is very different from, I think, anywhere else. Maybe Oxford and Cambridge is, is different. So you're not sitting there in a classroom <laughs> with hundreds of other students. You are sitting there one on one or two on one with you know, one of the world's top professors of, of their subject. Sure. Um, and you're only 18 or 19. So um, and you have to write an essay every week for Two of these professors, so you're writing two essays a week, and you have to read it out to them. <laughs> mm. And 
uh, and you know that they're these kind of incredibly, um, you know, uh, celebrated uh, academics. So it, it's kind of quite intimidating at first, but you, I think what you learn is um, there's no point playing it safe, right? Because, I mean, they literally would fall asleep. They, they would fall asleep sitting there drinking sherry by the fire if you were boring. So you, <laughs> you kind of have to really do something different and original uh, to, make, to make those sessions interesting. And I sure. think that's probably what I took out of it. It's like, okay, I've got to talk about Shakespeare with one of the great Shakespearean, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, what a good life lesson. Academics. Yeah. And I think that's been really useful in life. Just always try to do something different because it may be wrong, but at least it's different. You have, uh, you know, sons now that you're sending to school here in the U.S. Like, what do you think the U.S. could learn from? I mean, obviously, that that is a very, very different experience than I had in college and probably for most, you know, four-year universities across the United States. How do you think we could try to implement more of that? Or what do you think is lost when that isn't there? I'd focus more on what is there in the States uh, at first. I think... Um... The great thing that I've noticed with, with, with uh, having three kids at the moment in, in the, the system here is they, uh, they get to do so much project work from an early age. <laughs> um, I don't think I remember working on a project with anyone until I was like 22 and I was at work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we didn't do projects at school. So here, like from the age of, I don't know, six or seven onwards they seem to be working in teams and and, <laughs> and working on projects and i think that's pretty brilliant right that's that's what real life is it's collaborative so i think that's great about the american system and then yeah there's nowhere to hide in an american class room as far as i can tell they all have to stand up and say what they think about something even though they haven't really thought about it until they stand up yeah um so i think you know people in america tend to be comfortable sharing their point of view on something, which, you know, for better or worse in general. <laughs> well, I, I think that's, it's just an interesting perspective to hear that. And I, I'm imagining you sitting there reading these essays aloud. And I, I love that thought, right. Of, you know, something that I've really gained from this podcast is you can have ideas, you can have opinions, you can take the next step and maybe put them on social media and never have to stand by them, but to actually stand up and own your opinion and defend it and say, well, here's why I think this way, especially if it's not necessarily universally accepted or agreed upon, uh, you know, and learning how to have those conversations in a positive, uplifting way is, you know, I think one of my goals of this platform and something that I think you displayed in that way. Well, I think you've touched on another thing that you, that is good about the U.S. and that you know, I think I know you have a background. I heard remember one of your episodes about debate, debate yeah. school. And we kind of had that. Yeah, we definitely did that. We definitely had it at Oxford. But I think that debating culture is not as strong in the UK as it used to be. But it seems to have survived and thrived well in the States as well. So that's an amazing, you know, it's an, it's an amazing thing to do at school. So none of my kids have done it, unfortunately, but um, uh, I wish they had. Uh, I think it's just a great skill to be able to, you know, take two sides of the same argument, <laughs> not sure. know which side you have to argue until you're given it. That's amazing, right? Yeah, definitely makes you think in a different way. So you finished your time at Oxford, quite the experience. Tell us what, what were those next steps like for you? 
Well, I just jumped on a plane uh, literally the night I was, I was still wearing my academic gown. Uh, <laughs> I literally jumped that same night onto a plane out to Asia. Uh, and I flew to Hong Kong and uh, I started the next day as a journalist. As a Had you ever been to Asia before? I'd been once, yeah. I'd, I'd gone a couple of years earlier um, to visit my sister. She was living in Hong Kong um, and working there. And I remember getting off the plane and I just fell in love with it. It was just like love at first sight. Right? It's just like the smells and the sounds were all new. There's yeah. this incredible optimist. You've done it before, right? I mean, you sure. just get off and it's like, wow, you know, it's so, you know, it's busy and it's, it's people are industrious and everyone's you know, eating incredible food. And it's, I just wanted in. And at that time, I guess, Asia was like startups now, like technology startups. It was like mm -hmm. everyone knew Asia was going to be huge. I think that was 1991 or 92, and probably 92 when I arrived. That's when I was um, born. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that ages me. And, 92. Um, yeah. And I, I had this crazy experience that first summer that I, I spent there. I did like something like four weeks in an investment bank, like, earning a bit of money uh, on a kind of like a you know, work experience thing. I knew instantly I never wanted to be a banker. Uh, and then the next six weeks, I, I was in Indonesia just with my backpack again with, you know, $5 a day, $10 a day wandering around Indonesia. And I just, you know, I you know, got chased, you know, you see chased by Komodo dragons and went to Borobudur and discovered Buddhism and, and um, you know, just, it was just incredible um, adventure. And I think that was what I fell in love with Asia. It was, it was not so much the city and, you know, the, the cities, it was more the, um, the rural Southeast Asia that I really fell in love with. Yeah. I, I have, I've spent a little time in Asia. I've talked about it on the podcast, nowhere near the experiences you've had, but it is, I can I can feel that thought of showing up and everything feeling different. And that just resonated with you. And you decided that you were going to put your roots down in Asia. And you were there for a long time. Like, what was it that made you say, I'm not just going to stop and go here. You'd live this life of adventure. Why did you decide you were going to stay there for a while? Yeah, I stayed for 17 years. And I had a, you know, I had a, a very good, interesting career out in Asia. So I, you know, I started in Vietnam with a market research company. I then went to China and worked in the advertising market, which was just opening up, then got into the internet. We, we built a, a dot com, which we listed on NASDAQ um, in the year 2000 on the day of the NASDAQ crash, uh, which oh, wow. was like an Asian, Asian uh, dot com. Uh, and I joined Intel. They had a $14 billion Asian business. So I, that was a great place to learn. And um, I ended up with Group M, which is the world's biggest media group. Um, and I was CEO for a while in Singapore in their kind of regional HQ there. And um, so, yeah, 17 amazing years. And, and um, you know, I, I guess it was I, a typical week was a different, each week you were in a different country. So you might be in Thailand this week, come back to Singapore, you know, then next week you kind of, okay, now I've got to go to Indonesia, come back to Singapore. Next week it's Japan and Australia and India. And so it really was looking back exhausting. I couldn't do it again, but it was um, amazing um, learning. And I had no idea where it was all heading ever. And I, I think I learned, you know, there are, there are many paths to find what you're looking for. 
And anxiety is believing there's only one, right? If you're, if you're fixed on getting from point A to B, that's quite stressful. But if you kind of just go with the flow, then it all kind of uh, works itself out. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that thought of anxiety feeling, well, this is the only way and I have to do this. And if something doesn't work out, guess what? Like there's no other plan. You're going to have that moment of panic and moment of terror. And I think especially, you know, I talk a lot about generations on the podcast, as you, as you know, and I think for the younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, we are so taught often that, you know, there is one way we're so driven for success and accomplishment and checking off the boxes that I think a lot of us possibly miss those opportunities uh, like you had. I mean, even from a safety standpoint now, I don't know many 18-year-olds that are just left on a vacation in a foreign country with a couple hundred bucks to figure it out. We give our, you know, 13-year-olds cell phones now and make sure we need to know from the time they leave school to when they get home they're safe. How have you seen that evolve? Um, yeah, I think I think it has it's quite disturbing. I think it has really changed. I think we we um we try to protect our kids uh you know, way too much and, and, and shield them from what could happen in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we need to, you know, and it's, it's a very natural parenting um, response, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you just want to keep them safe, right? Sure. Uh, so you, you know, parenting is not a natural thing, right? You have to think logically. It's like, okay, well, I need to overcome this fear of mine and push them out uh, to kind of go off and, uh, see the world and, and learn some lessons for themselves. So in general, I think, uh, I think we all have to, and I, I'm as guilty as anyone. Like I have to, my kids, my six, 17 year old is, um, he's going off to Nepal uh, this, um, uh, this summer. And I'm really excited about that. He's going to do, you know, some, some, um, uh, some charity uh, projects and, and I hope he's going to do like I did. I mean, uh, Nepal was one of the dozens of countries that, you know, I, I got to, spend time in um so hopefully he's going to do some some trekking there and see yeah. Kathmandu and do the you know experience the delights of it but uh there's some amazing things out there in the in asia uh, to see that uh, everyone should see at some point in their life so quickly before we move on for maybe mm. some listeners that are saying okay this has inspired me i'm gonna head to asia what are those few top things you recommend if maybe they don't have a year okay um well, I could go on and on. So I'll just do five, let's say. Um, so I think uh, number one, well, not, not necessarily this order. You've got to go to Cambodia and you've got to see Angkor Wat, uh, which are these okay. old, incredible, like, you know, uh, uh, Indiana Jones type temples. Um, and if, you know, another similar kind of thing is in Myanmar, there's a, a place called Bagan, which is a whole plain of temples. That's a little bit tougher to see at the moment because um, because of what's going on in Myanmar, unfortunately. Um, Borobudur in, in uh, Indonesia, in central Java, is just this incredible, huge, I think it's the biggest, the second biggest Buddhist structure in the world, this huge temple overlooking this whole plain and all these stone Buddhas staring out uh, in the silence is amazing. The Great Wall of China is uh, incredible and you can, you can even kind of, uh, you know, you can walk on it and you can, and do treks and, and there's lots of areas of the Great Wall which is stunning. I think you've got to go to India and see the palaces in, in Rajasthan 
and try to get out to somewhere like Jaisalmer and get out into the desert on a camel. Um, and then uh, Vietnam, where I lived for a while, um, Halong Bay in the north was just these beautiful like limestone um, uh, little islands just cropping up out of the, uh, the sea. And then you can kind of go on a, a boat trip in, in between them and sleep on the boat. So there's, there's five to get it. you going. I, <laughs> I never, I rarely take notes during an interview, right? Like I'm focused here, but you just saw me. I was getting out pen and paper. Like, what is he <laughs> going to say right here? I've done the Great Wall and I've been to Vietnam, but I, I definitely have some work to do. I want you to share there. I, uh, I love that mentality. And we're going to talk more about kind of uh, your experience with Buddhism and thoughts, how that uh, has shaped your life in a little bit. But let's let's fast forward now to you worked at a company for a little while that most of us have probably heard of. It's a uh, bigger company that uh, maybe maybe we have uh, know a thing or two about, uh, started by a guy named Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook. Tell me about your experience working for Facebook. So Facebook was, uh, was another privilege. Um, I worked there for seven years. When I joined Facebook, it was a, it was a private company. Um, there were you know, maybe a hundred or so people in London where I joined. And um, you know, we'd, we'd never sold a single mobile ad at that point. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, and then seven years later, we'd, we'd, we'd built out that ad business and we were selling $70 billion or so of, of mobile ads. Wow. So it was a, uh, from a business perspective, I'd, maybe it's the fastest growth trajectory of revenue of any company ever uh, from zero to, uh, well, there was, there was a little bit of other revenue at that time. There was desktop ads, sure. but um, it was, uh, it was exciting. It was, it was amazing people, um, big questions about business, but also uh, society. Um, there was a mission uh, uh, you know, this mission, which we all believed in, which was, you know, to make the world more open and connected. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that certainly happened. I think Facebook and other social media have made the world more open and connected. It's, you know, but now we know, you know, there have been positive and, and negative side effects of that. So, um, so, you know, Facebook now is a lot more about making it more open and connected and trying to make it safer as well, um, sure. which is tougher. But I, I picked up um, many good business. I, I learned a lot about business. I thought I knew a lot when I arrived and I realized that I didn't. And um, I think a few of the, the big learnings I got were um, there, there was, they had this thing called strengths culture, um, which is the idea that you will grow strongest where you are already strong. Hmm. So, um, y- you know, Imagine, so if you're managing people, I was typically managing, managing teams of people and um, you can choose to focus on people's weaknesses or you can choose to focus on their strengths. And I think, you know, typically in everything I'd always experienced, you kind of said, oh, well, you know, you've, you've had a great year or you've had a great six months and well done, you've done this and that, but, you know, here are your weaknesses and you need to work on them. <laughs> sure. And I guess at Facebook, they, they turned it around the other way. So you'd say, okay, well, you know, you've got a few weaknesses, this and this, but here's your strength. And so how do we build on your strength to, to grow even stronger there? Yeah. And that was really, it's a great management philosophy. And I think all, you know, all companies should explore that and look at that. Um, and it's great for people and it's great for companies. 
Um, yeah. And and then another big thing that I took away from it was this idea of experimentation. So in Facebook, there's no you know, no one's got the no one's got the title strategy at Facebook. Uh, it's just constantly trying to create ways to run rapid um, rapid experiments and giving as many people the power to run experiments as possible. So there's this idea that if you embrace experimentation and testing as a culture, then you get innovation for free. Uh, mm. You know, and it's, it's the code that wins arguments. So there'd be these funny times where you'd be having an argument about, well, let's do this. No, let's do this. Let's do this. And someone would say, hey, you know, code wins arguments. <laughs> do both of them. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, let's just test it. Man, so many great parallels there of, I love that strength sculpture. Just find what you're good at and do more of that, right? Just link into that and make that something that you can place your hat on at the end of the day. And, uh, and then I think, I mean, that experimentation logic that you just shared is something that you have really displayed your whole life, right? I mean, that's the hangout in Israel with 200 bucks and what can you prove and what can you do from that? And I think, that is, that's really a great takeaway for all of us as we, you know, try to find success, whatever that looks like. And I can imagine that at Facebook, it was a pretty fast paced time. I bet it was pretty stressful. Um, during your time at Facebook, you also ended up coming out to headquarters in Palo Alto, correct? Yes, that's right. I, I moved to Palo Alto with Facebook. So you end up, you know, the, kind of this hustle and bustle of being in one of the biggest companies in the world and creating, you know, this advertisement arm that is now one of the largest businesses in the world from scratch. How, did you feel like at, at any point that you were just like, you didn't have any more energy to give or you were just going to burn out? Uh, yeah, I think I did. I, I think um, after seven years, I was pretty burnt out and I... Um, and I also think seven years is probably as long as I can spend on anything. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's quite unnatural for me to spend that long on something. Um, you know, I think you've got to kind of understand what you are. Are you a sprinter or a, a long distance runner or a mid, mid, mid distance runner? And I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm none of those. I'm not a runner, but um, <laughs> uh, in terms of career, I'm definitely kind of mid distance. You know, I did four years at Intel. I did five years at Group M seven years in, in, at Facebook, the idea of, Hey, you know, I worked at this company for 20 years. Like I, that, that doesn't, yeah. you know, a, a life is not living the same year over and over again for 80 years. Right. It's you, you have to try and you're only, you're only around as long for, for a short while. So you need to try a few different things. I, I love that mindset. You've definitely done that. So tell me about your decision to leave Facebook and you like hit a hard reset on your life. Yeah, well, I I did. Um, uh, I actually chose as I was kind of exiting Facebook. I I chose to do a an eleven day silent meditation retreat, and I uh, I'd been reading a bit about it. I knew a couple of friends who'd done it. I'd asked them questions. They'd both said, you know, it's the it's the most transformational thing they'd ever done. Um, you know, and I guess I I just got curious about it. And someone said, well. Like when you leave Facebook, you, you you need to, you just need to kind of reset, as you said. Um, and uh, and so I uh, went ahead into this, and I had had no real idea that it was going to be as um, 
as uh, much a change from everything that I thought of before uh, as it was. I mean, you, you, this was in um, central Java. You can actually do it all over the world. It's called Vipassana. Um, it's been going for, um, well, it's been going for two and a half thousand years, um, but it's really this whole Vipassana organization where you can go and do these sessions around the world has been really going since the 1960s and 70s. Um, and now there are oh, yeah, something like 200 centers around the world. You, um, you just turn it, you, you sign up, you have to sign up uh, at the website, I think it's called dharma.org, um, book a session. Um, it's free, you don't pay any money. Um, you don't, you give whatever you feel you want to at the end. Um, and you hand over all your worldly belongings, right? You hand over your phone and, and uh, uh, they lock those up. Uh, and so there I was in central Java. There was about 50 guys and 50 girls. And we were in a, there was a big meditation hall and we slept in, um, the, boy, the, the men slept on one side, the women slept on the other side. And we slept in rooms of four. But the main thing, when I say it's a silent meditation retreat, it's, it is totally silent for those 11 days. You, you don't say anything and you don't even look at anyone else in the eye. Wow. So I didn't know who was sleeping either side of me. Turns out at the end, uh, there was a Russian and there was a, a Belgian guy, but I didn't know. Um, and we never looked at each other in the eye. And we woke up at 4 a.m. We started meditating at 4.30 a.m. We ate a little bit of food at, uh, at, at 6.30 a.m., uh, vegan. We meditated again. We had lunch around 11 a.m., ate a little bit of food, and then that was it for the day. No more food. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, oh, no, I think actually we had a tea break. We had got some tea at 5 p.m. or something. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was it was about 10 hours a day of meditation. And, um, and then lights out and brush your teeth and go to sleep at 9 and back up again the next day at 4, 4.30. Um, wow. So, yeah. And, and um, by, well, most people go through the same kinds of experiences, right? Which is um, at uh, you know day one, day two, you you really are panicking a little bit because you don't believe that you're going to get through it. Sure. Because w what happens is, as you sit there an hour at a time, and you are just told to focus on the sensation of your breath coming out of your nose and touching your upper lip. You do that for the first four days or so. And, and all you're told to do is, well, you know, you're going to keep your monkey mind is going to keep thinking of the past and it's going to keep worrying about the future. That's what your mind does all day long. Sure. And you've probably never watched it do that before. You've never listened to it. And now you're going to be hearing it do that the first time. You're going to be hearing your own voice for the first time. And um, you're going to be scared by what that voice is and what that voice says. And all we want you to do for these kind of 10 days, pretty much, is observe those thoughts that you're not thinking. They're thinking themselves. You have no control mm -hmm. over these thoughts. Otherwise, you'd be able to control them. They're not your thoughts. They are thoughts that are kind of thinking themselves. And your job is just to observe them, not judge yourself, not judge the thought, and just send them on their way and come back to that breath. <laughs> um, yeah. And you realize that you can't control those thoughts and you kind of give up trying. 
and um, you uh, you realize how little control that you have. And uh, I guess the outcome at the end of it is um, you you become much more, I guess, easy with the <laughs> easy with the world in a sense that you can't really control even the thoughts in your own head. So how are you going to control anything in in life? Wow. Do people give up? Like you said, you started with 50 and 50. Is this something that like a lot of people just say, I can't do it after three days? Yeah, I think, um, I think a few, few people always give up. Um, so in our group, uh, I think something like three of them gave up. And um, hopefully it's coincidence, but two of them were in my room. So uh, it could have been my snoring. And if they're out there, I, I apologize. But they couldn't the tell you about it. That was part of the rules, right? I think, yeah, I think they, they couldn't handle my snoring. Wow. And, and so, I mean, tell me, like those first couple of days, I can imagine the panic. Tell me where you get all of a sudden by day seven or eight. So... Um, I guess it's different from, from uh, everyone else, but uh, day four was, was pretty intense as well. Around about day four, I personally, and I think a lot of people get this, got a, um, a moment of, you, you know, of euphoria, if you like. So I, um, I started to experience this in overwhelming sense of bliss. Right? So my whole body was just charged with bliss and it was, it was you know, the most blissful moment of my life i guess um and you think that's you know you you kind of get a bit carried away and you think that this joy is this a lasting thing <laughs> and that you know you, you'll be able to generate it upon demand whenever you meditate and you you think that was the meaning of um the whole vipassana and the whole meditation and um uh, you the only conversation you're allowed to have is is with the buddhist monk um who just kind of kicks off each session and then closes each session. And uh, you're allowed to go and sit with him at lunchtime and kind of tell him. And I went and told him and he basically cut me off and he said, yes, you know, that, uh, that is not the purpose of meditation. That's your ego. Um, so you, you kind of need to ignore that and just get back on with your, the, the work I've set you. <laughs> wow. So like, so that, that was an interesting. You were like, you thought you just figured it out I, and cracked yeah, the code of I meditation. I, I win. <laughs> I thought I was the chosen one. And he was like, no, 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 you know, yeah, most people get that. That's your ego. Um, and uh, and then t- at the end, um, there were some times kind of around towards, you know, day, day eight, day nine, where I really did feel a sense of nothingness, you know, where, um, where I was able to you know, just sit still in the moment and observe each passing thought and sensation without judgment hmm. um, and that I was neither chasing nor avoiding things, but just accepting them uh, be, and being there in the middle. Um, and uh, yeah, that was only for a short while. And it, it's, I still meditate every day, but um, you know, not for, not for so long. Uh, even short periods of time of meditation now just kind of almost get you back into that that special mind state. Um, uh, so yeah, that was, that was my experience of it all. 
I, over the last few weeks, after a lot of our conversations, have dabbled with meditation. I have not won as the ultimate meditator yet. (laughs) Uh, Like I have not experienced that joy and blissfulness. But I'll give you some of my thoughts. And then I'm curious for what advice you might give to the listeners. Um, You know, for me, I, it's amazing to see how busy your brain is all day long, right? Like it is thinking about things constantly. I love how you said either replaying the past or thinking about the future. Like I can attest to that. And I think that the cool part for me that I've experienced and and, uh, really my short experience with this is the recognition and almost allowing yourself that you don't have to you don't have to resolve these thoughts, right? Where I am a natural problem solver. I'm a natural planner, like we talked about. And so you have a thought. And so you want to do something with it. You want to apply that or work it or make sure you remember it or whatever it might be. And being in this, the longest I've gone is 30 minutes. It's not like anything crazy, but just being okay with like this thought does not matter right now. And I can think about it later. It'll come back later. Just like, boom, push that out. And that has been a really cool practice for me to just allow myself to not have to find resolution all the time. Yeah, that's really unnatural for us because we, you know, we, we'd like to solve things and, uh, you know, read, read a lot into everything. And um, yeah, so when you, when you do that whole Vipassana experience, you realize, oh, wow, these aren't even my thoughts. These are, these are thoughts that are happening to me. I can't control them. Um, so then you kind of become less attached to those thoughts <laughs> and you kind of become, you say, well, it's not my thought. So why am I getting so wound up about this thought? <laughs> like mm-hmm. I can choose just to not engage with it. So it's that not engaging, choosing not to engage with a thought is a really powerful skill. And it actually helps you with um, all the walks of life in your relationships and at work, because a calm mind is a better mind. Yeah. And if you have the ability to not respond to a trigger, as we all know, uh, you know we've, we've needed this over the last year, right, in America, um, then you can think and apply a calm mind to whatever the situation is. So it's, it's that, it's exactly you say, like, like learning, train your train. It's like a muscle. It's like working out. It's like doing push-ups, right? You, you have a, your muscle is your mind and you are training it through meditating every day to not get too attached to thoughts. And therefore you can actually apply your calm mind and your logical mind to all these situations. Cause you, that's how you become successful. You become successful by making 60% good decisions and 40% bad decisions instead of 40% good decisions and 60% bad decisions. It's like it's just a little percentage, right? You just need to kind of get the odds in your favor. It's like playing golf. Yeah, man, man, that's really, really good. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears here in just a second. We'll talk about, you know, you coming to America now. I think you just let it, let a good little segue there. But before I do that, I just want to ask, like you finish these 11 days, what was the feeling of accomplishment? Like, I know we talked about all of a sudden for the first time, then you're allowed to talk to these people that you've lived with for 11 days. And you've probably made up stories of who they are and where they're from for the last little while. Like, what was that like to finally have the gates open and okay, talk? Yeah, well, 
that was quite um, an emotional moment uh, because we just we we hugged, we kind of you know we 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 kind of naturally went to the people that it's like oh you know the people we'd been sleeping next to or sitting next to, um, and yeah, it was exactly like you said. You it's like oh I thought you know I had this story about you that you were some you know Russian mafia guy or something like that, um, and so we all had these funny kind of impressions of each other. Um, uh, there, there was one guy, the Belgian guy, who was in my room. He came over to me and he apologized and he said, um, he said, look, I'm so sorry about what happened on day four, right? You know, it's, it's, you know, it must've been awful for you. And, um, uh, you know, it, but it was a, it was a major breakthrough for me. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's what I came here for. And I yeah. said, I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> And he said, okay, well, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was screaming and there was this um, giant green beast kind of coming out of my stomach. And, you know, I'd been through many bad things in my childhood and, and it was like an exorcism, like this, this evil came out of me. And now I just feel totally light. You know, I've never felt like this since, you know, I was aged eight or whatever, he said. And I just gave him a hug and I said, you know, that's just an amazing thing. Like, I'm so happy. I didn't experience that, so maybe, maybe that was just a dream. Um, uh, you know, I, I didn't. Uh, it didn't wake me up. Um, so there were some really kind of intense moments, and a lot of us have stayed together, like on Facebook, and we'd become friends. And you know, even though we never <laughs> spoke for eleven days, and then we just had one evening at the end where we got to connect. Um, and and then I think the other amazing thing was is at the end of it, they came they you know, you haven't touched your mobile phone for 11 days, right? Yeah. You've been cut off, you know, that was the, probably the hardest thing for me was thinking not to think too much about my family, right? You know, yeah. just programmed to think about my family and my kids. So that was the hardest thing for me. Um, but yeah, when they came and they said, okay, you know, here are the phones, you can take your phone back now, you can turn them on, you can, you can message, <laughs> you can check your me emails. <laughs> And all of us just went, oh, you know. <laughs> like, like we basically put, the, we all kind of put the phones over, and we, and none of us wanted to touch our phones for a good few hours, um, because it was, it was that, oh, that 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 thing that is going to be ding, 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 controlling me. It's going to take back control of me, and right now I feel free and I feel in control, and I'm going to turn that thing on, and I, I want to talk to my, you know, my wife and my kids, but. The minute that comes on, it's the whole world comes back. Man, that is fascinating. That story with your Belgian roommate, you know, it brings up so many other questions that we could probably do a whole conversation on that of, you know, like what he experienced that as if it was real. And if he's claiming that he was screaming in the middle of the night, like you would have woken up to that. But who are you to tell him? Well, no, that didn't happen. Like that, that experience wasn't real because I didn't wake up. For him, whether that was a dream or not, that was reality. And I think that's a really kind of beautiful truth. Yes. And that's a great way of expressing it. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty amazing experience. Now, uh, you know, we've talked all of these different places. You've been all over the world and all exotic. You live in Utah. <laughs> Yeah. What, what made you make the decision that I'm going to take my family to Utah? Um, that, that, that is a good question. Um, so when I finished up at Facebook, we 
you know, we were pretty happy in Palo Alto. It's a great place. It's a very expensive place. It's a very, you know, there's a lot of traffic. Um, and um, we sat down and we said, well, my wife and I, uh, we said, do, do, is this where we want to be for the next, you know, eight or nine years it would be committing to with the age of our kids? And we said, well, you know, that's a good question. Where else? And, and then we kind of said, well, where have we been really happy? And, and uh, we, we love skiing and we'd been skiing here, Deer Valley, Park City, Alter Snowbird. And we said, oh, we love, I love that area. And we said, well, you know, we should check it out. Like, I mean, it's an amazing place. It's amazing in the summer as well. Um, I'm quite impressed by Salt Lake City. So we just jumped on a plane, checked out schools and houses and things. And we said, you know what? This, let's do it. Let's take the risk. And uh, um, I'm really glad that we did. It's, it, it, we've been here almost a year. It is the people here. You know this, right? I mean, the people here are second to none. I mean, just the friendliest people I've ever met in my life. In many ways, it reminds me of Singapore, only with better weather. Um, because it's still, uh, like the thing about Singapore is it still is, uh, how would you say it? It's still kind of dreaming, or it's still got a perception that we're building utopia, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We've you know, we're, we're trying to keep this well organized and we're trying to make things better and better every year and it's getting better and better every year. And that's not the same in many places around the world. That is, is a lot of, San Francisco doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's getting worse. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you, this place, you know, I think a lot of that comes from the Mormon and the LDS kind of um, uh, background, but it, it really feels well organized, feels under control people are great and um it's a great place to raise kids well that's that's pretty cool and that's that's how we met if you're listening to all this now and you're like how did you two come in contact your son plays on my cousin's soccer team and we've just uh, casually connected over watching i'd say soccer but i know you're gonna call it football so we won't make that mistake <laughs> Um, you know, you talk about the positive things, which I love to hear of that, but, you know, and we talk a little bit more specifically here in closing about what we're trying to do with this podcast and, you know, the movement of being in the middle. First off, what has your thought been of the political climate that we are faced with in the United States right now from all your experiences all over the world? Like, is it as bad as we say it is? Um, it's as, I, I, I honestly think it's as bad as you want it to be, right? Mm. It, you know, I, I don't have a vote here. I, I'm, I, I follow the politics. It's, it's, it is interesting. Uh, I don't have a vote. Um, I'm not a citizen. Um, I don't watch, I, I deliberately don't watch, you know, local news or daytime news or these, these things that are going to, I know are going to upset my calm, <laughs> Um, yep. uh, and so I think, you know, and I don't sit there on Twitter kind of, you know, following, um, following kind of politics day in, day out. So I think you, um, if you want to kind of, you know, get really involved with it and get worked up about it, you can, um, I think you can also step back and you can, um, take a calmer mind to it. I think, uh, there's a lot of good things. Uh, that are happening. I mean, the, the biggest issue for me is is the polarization, right? It's it, compared to anywhere else I've been. Um, you know, it, it's 
it just feels bizarre that people identify so strongly um, you know, with the, being a Democrat or being a Republican and, and that that becomes this really hardwired um, element, you know, side to their personality and, and, and that they, will, they are going to support whoever you know, my party puts forward, you know, that's going to be my person and I'm going to believe them and follow them and whatever they say, you know, <laughs> no matter who gets put up. And that's just not what I, um, you know, I don't, that's not what I see in, in so much in Europe. It's not what I grew up with. My dad, you know, uh, you know, he studied politics to a certain extent and, and, you know, followed it day in, day out. But like, he never told me in his life who he voted for. I can, you know, if I ever asked him, I remember asking when I was a teenager, he said, oh, that's between me and the ballot box, right? I, I listen to, I look at the candidates, I listen to what they've got to say for them and say, say for themselves and I study it and then I'll make my decision on the day, right? Um, based on who I think is going to make the right decisions, right? Because the government, the politicians are here to serve us. They are our servants, right? They are public servants. And, sure. you know, so you, you know, we should be looking for people who are excellent public servants, people who have committed their lives to this, people who have, who are dedicated, clearly dedicated and expert at administration and management. And, and you know, we don't want to hear that much from them, right? <laughs> I don't, they don't need to be celebrities. We've got enough celebrity in the States, right? We've got music, we've got movies, we've got great celebrities, right? We don't need our politicians to be celebrities. So I just don't understand I don't know what, how we got here, but um, I think what you're doing is just fascinating. And that's why I'm very supportive of um, the direction, you know, just the leadership that you're showing. You're, you're saying, let's, let's meet in the middle, right? Let's, um, the, the, the middle is the majority. And, and yet we seem so quiet and silent sometimes. And if we may, if we were loud in the middle, um, then, um, then, you know, that would be better for everyone. It would build a better America if we just kind of get much louder, more rational in the middle. And people don't come at everything from a hardwired us versus them approach. Yeah. Well, everyone that is listening right now has now seen why I call you a mentor and why I appreciate the uh, time that you've given me and all the many conversations that we've had. Uh, this was really, really fun today to, you know, we, I, I haven't known a lot of these details that you've shared about your life and experiences that have led you to where you are today. And I really appreciate your friendship. And this is going to be really fun for us in the next episode. We are flipping the script. You're going to interview me yeah. and I'm going to put myself in the hot seat. And I, I've already told you, James, like, I don't want to know the questions. Nothing's off limits. Feel free to talk. And uh, that'll be the next episode that everyone listens to is us just fully switching roles here, even though I haven't had quite as colorful of a life to this point, but helping me find my path. Yeah, well, I'm really excited about that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. Uh, um yeah, be careful what you wish for. I was a, I was trained as a reporter uh, before I started, so uh, expect some uh, some interesting questions. <laughs> and and you know, thank oh, I'm you, looking you, forward you, to it. You are. I have no doubt that uh, it's going to be a really interesting conversation, uh, far more interesting than than mine, because you you uh, you've just thought about history and you thought about politics, and you are, you know, um, 
you are what you the messages that you have are really important for um, America today. So I I will I, I want to ask you a bunch of questions. So I'm looking forward to it. Excited. Well, I told everyone this in the intro, but we will have you back at a later time where we talk about the book that you wrote from your experience after your meditation and just all this time that you've spent collecting thoughts and uh, basically your personal aid to happiness in this life that is called Path. It's an incredible book. I don't want to give it away right now, but I will say if you enjoyed meeting James today, it's jechadwick.com, correct? Yes. JEChadwick.com. Also join his Facebook group. There's a daily little post that he makes with words of wisdom that are fantastic. My whole family, we screenshot them and send them to each other all the time and grab a copy of his book. Um, in fact, most of the profits go to uh, first responders, right? Yeah, frontline hair workers, uh, health workers, yeah. Awesome. And that is called Path by J.E. Chadwick. We will be talking more about the lessons that are gained there in a further episode. Uh, And uh, then you'll hear from both of us again in episode 50. Kind of exciting. 50 episodes in less than a year. Thanks for being a part of it, everyone. Thanks for listening. Until next time, James. Do you want to do a solo? (laughs) Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Oh, man, I can tell that English influence. It sounded like Paul McCartney singing right there. I loved it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. We'll see you next time. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am.